collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. We have three guests this morning. One is still finding their way in between work and everything. And this is the first episode that we're actually live on Facebook. I think we are. So welcome, Carla Cruel. Welcome, uh, Louis Molina. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. How are you today? Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. Really well. I'd love you to, if you could start with just like a really quick introduction and tell us kind of who you are. We did it before so you guys could get to know each other, but if you could kind of do it at the similar speed, just so folks know who you are. And I'll also uh, see if Damon needs any support getting on the show. Okay, so good morning. Um, thanks again. It's great to be back. Uh, for those that don't know, my name is Louis Molina. I have over 20 years working in the criminal justice system. I have been fortunate to work in the three main pillars of the, our criminal justice system, policing, the district attorney's office, as well as in corrections. Um, I've been from within trying to reform and sort of redefine what our criminal justice and in some degrees of what our social service systems to look like to support vulnerable populations. So I look forward to this discussion this morning on how our collective power can help evolve and reform uh, a system that has really disenfranchises communities of color and poor communities throughout the country. Hello, my name is Carla Krull. I'm an attorney and an activist, but I, I define activists a little bit differently than most people. Um, I call it activating the power of the collective community. It's not really about the person. And so I've been practicing law for about six years now. I was a teacher. Prior to that, um, I have a master's in criminal justice because it was actually my goal to become a law enforcement officer, but I ended up taking a different path. And so I do a lot of work with people who are already organizing and who are out there on the street and doing a lot more advice as well as my own practice and how I actually practice law is a form of activism. So I love this because in some ways you're both strategists, right? Although in very different ways. So uh, Carla, I know that you help activists think about like what their demands are going to be, like what legal action to stand for, given your understanding of the law, right? Correct. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Okay, yes. great. And Lewis, I would call you a strategist too, because I remember you saying on your show that you're accountable for the culture, Right. You're accountable Absolutely. for the internal culture of where you serve. 
Yes. And so in that regard, like you're a strategist of sorts as well, right? Because you're constant, you must be constantly thinking about what actions to take to shift that culture when you find it kind of out of integrity with your values or what you see the department standing for. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that. And I also think it's sort of what type of outcomes are we actually trying to achieve, right? So from a training standpoint, you can do training on implicit bias throughout a whole department or in a training academy. But if you still have a system where quotas are maybe not public, but there's an expectation of certain type of arrest, stop and question frisk activity, then it counters to that implicit bias and discretion that police officers in, in that case would have by the law, right? So the leadership of these law enforcement organizations, from my view, really define the culture that exists within the organization. Wonderful. And now Damon has joined us. So Damon, I'd like you to, just like you did before, a quick introduction. We're now going live on Facebook, I think, which is kind of a miracle that's been a long time coming. If you could just introduce yourself a little bit. It's great to see your face. I haven't seen you in 10 years. This is like wonderful. <laughs> and uh, we did audio on our last show. So yeah. uh, if you could introduce yourself and then we'll kind of take the conversation from there. My name is Damon Jones. I'm the New York representative of Blacks in Law Enforcement of America. I've been in the law enforcement institution for over 30 years. I am also the publisher of uh, a Westchester magazine called Black Westchester. The magazine was started around bringing awareness to police criminality in Westchester and the issues of racial bias and racism and white supremacy that's in our law enforcement and justice system. So I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to join the discussion. So Damon, one of the things I realized right after Carla and Lewis, I'm going to go all by first names. I'm going to dunk the titles because it's just easier sure. that way. Okay, great. Right. Right. Thank you. Thank you for the grace with that. So one of the things I just realized is that both Carla and Lewis are strategists in many ways. And that Carla is a strategist in that she helps activists based on her understanding of the law, which I'm learning more and more is like deep beyond belief. Um, Cause Carla is also a visionary, right? But like combining her understanding of the law with how to support activists. And then mm -hmm. I was realizing, like, since Lewis is accountable for the culture in the department, I'm sure Lewis is a strategist as well, because you're trying to navigate, like, how to have the principles actually reflected in reality, yeah. even when sometimes they're not. So I'm curious, Damon, are there ways in which you're a strategist too, having been a correctional officer that really stands for the value of black lives is the easiest <laughs> way to say it. <laughs> I could use more radical terms, but I'll, I'll keep it at that. Well, I think as a law enforcement professional and being a black man in this institution and being a part of uh, black law enforcement organizations for over 25 years, I think we assist the community. You know, the goal of black law enforcement organizations, you know, from the National Black Police Association, the National Association of Blacks and Criminal Justice, and Guardians Association and my organization, Blacks in Law Enforcement of America, has always been to assist the Black community to be representatives of the Black community in the justice system. Um, so I think um, we have been out front in supporting victims of police crimes all across the country and being vocal on policy change. Like I was saying earlier, this is nothing new. 
right? And a lot of the laws that they're talking about doing now, black law enforcement has been talking about it since the 60s. Independent special prosecutor is not new. Having a, a civilian complaint review board with subpoena power is not new. You know, all these issues that they are, all of a sudden the light bulb is going off. Oh, we got to do this and do that. We've been talking to the politicians and we've been outspoken and given directions to a lot of the victims and, and even standing with victims of police crime. So I think we've been, from a black law enforcement perspective, um, we've been working right alongside with the community for justice. So, Damon, you actually started kind of kicking off what I was going to ask uh, next, which is what is your stand in the face of kind of the defund movement that's picking up these days? I think the whole strategy of defunding or the conversation of defunding is a distraction. I think we really need to talk about changing the culture, changing the way the black communities are on police. Of course, we could always look into budgets and see, you know, what is being wasted and what's not. And a lot of the issues, even like the mental health issue, throwing that as a police problem, you know, it shouldn't be a police problem. It should be looked at, too, as a mental health issue. Also, I think before we even have that conversation, Black communities must be able to police themselves like other communities do. We have to have that conversation. The Black community needs to have the conversation of how do we police ourselves? Police are called. They respond to issues that go on in the community. But like the Jewish community, they police themselves. They take care of their business within the community. And sometimes the police even have to ask to come in their community. So we have to have a mindset of the Black community in beginning to have responsibility and having code of conducts within our community and policing ourselves first. I partially agree with you, but I think that that is a solution that is not as realistic in the historical context of our community has been broken down. So some people just want to start with slavery. If you think about the repercussions of Jim Crow, if you think about the repercussions of the criminal justice system as a whole, right, how... Uh, Rita's work, how we've broken down families, right? So mm-hmm. you don't have communities like we did before. Your neighbor is not going to come out and feel safe to say, hey, you know, stop hitting that little kid in the head when they're younger because right. they're running the house and tell their mom and then their mom, like, don't talk to my kid. But a lot of those things have come from all of the other injustices mm-hmm all of these other systems that are at play that are actually informing why we who we talk about ourselves and we whenever right. we are on the news right mm-hmm. and we're embarrassed by the the use of us we talk about ourselves and when the US open but we have been broken down systematically to not think about we in our communities anymore absolutely so mm-hmm. getting there is about like I think it's harder to get there because we have all of this healing. Like we're broken down between right. light skin and dark skin. We're broken down between <laughs> right. and have nots. We're broken mm-hmm. down between right. single parent and you know you got two parents, right? That like literally, you know, Native Americans went through like the physical genocide of losing their bodies. We through right. a mental genocide. Exactly. Um, I like I love the idea of community policing. But I also know, and this is an example I, I gave the reader before, right? 
you guys, if you have ever had to testify in court, you know that prosecutors, the people that they love to have on their jury is old black ladies, right? If you have a black male criminal, put an old black lady on that jury, she gonna lock them up, right? So, <laughs> so there's all of this, like, it's not an easy fix. And no, I feel not. like we have to get to the root of the problem and uproot the whole thing, right? That's, that's where right. I I like the idea, but if we can't heal all of this historic trauma in our communities, I don't know how we can police ourselves. Well, yeah, and I agree. But that's why I'm saying we have to start having that discussion. You know, before we start talking about let's defund the police, you have people saying let's get rid of the police department totally. But before you even get to taking the police department out of the community, we have to have that conversation and how do we heal how do we build our relationships? And then how do we begin to police our community? you right, before we get to pulling the police. And I agree with you totally, but that's something that we really have to work on also. And we have to recognize it. Right now, we don't recognize it. We're not open about it, you know, because if you say Black people are broken people, you get attacked on Facebook. So we're not ready to have that conversation that you're talking about. We can't have a conversation of pulling the police a real conversation on pulling the police out of the black community, like some activists are saying now. I don't realistically think that they're going to ever be able to get to a point of completely defunding and breaking no. the police department. I, no. Who's saying? Who's saying? So need a critical mass, and I don't think we're going to get there. But go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just curious who was they. You said I don't think they're ever going to get. Who's they? So what I've learned, because I, I, I wanted to do a little bit more research, when I say that, there is a small population of people who, when they say defund, they truly mean exactly. no more police. Exactly. Right? There is, exactly. And then some people are saying defund, and what they really mean by it is reallocation of resources. Exactly. They exactly. still want some police around for some things. More people are going to align with that second one than the first one, mm-hmm. but the completely getting rid of the police. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know many black women over the age of like 60 who are going to be like, I'm okay with not having a cop around because when that little rug rat around the corner acts up, I want to be able to call the police. You know what I mean? So I don't mean to pick on older people. We have to remember we have the baby boomers who they are a large part of our society and they've grown up in a particular way of thinking And they do call the police more than most other people, right? And so if you're going to take their cops away, they're going to be like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these kids, right? So it's too noisy. Ah, call the police, you know? So people forget about that. They're thinking about the big, the, you know, George Floyd stories, but they're not thinking about the people who call because the neighbor is getting on their nerves and they're calling the police. And I don't think that group of people are going to be down with you taking their cops away completely. I love what you're saying because you're highlighting the complexity of what the system stands on. So when we hear those, the flashy headlines or slogans, right? The system is us, or we uphold the system, right? What we're referring to or what those slogans refer to is all this complexity, right? Like you have the George Floyd alongside with the ladies you're talking about, right, Carla? Mm-hmm. Along with Alice Cooper, right. right? Like that is all happening at the same time. And I think you have to also realize, and I think we have to get to a, a place publicly and nationally where we have to recognize we have a race-based caste system in this country. 
And while laws may be blind, the implementation of how those laws, whether you're talking about police enforcement, whether you're talking about disciplinary systems within police departments, they have been race-based in their motivation, right, to have certain types of outcomes happen. So for me, when I look at defunding the police, for me, it's we are at a moment where we can truly redefine the role we want the police to play. We can probably redirect those fundings to deal with issues of education disparities, health inequities, and economic inequities that are in communities of color and have been for, for generations. And I think we need to get to a point in this country where we need a truth and reconciliation process for communities of color and our government and how the police has over-policed these communities and exacerbated a situation where you look at not only African-Americans are 2.5 times higher to be shot and killed by the police when unarmed compared to white Americans by population census, but also looking at the disparities that exist between black and brown, especially men, in our prison systems throughout this country, right? We're an incarcerated nation, incarcerating more of our citizens than a country like China, right? So I think that has to be part of the macro conversation as we move this agenda forward. Lewis. <laughs> Yes. I mean, preach. I, I like started typing preach because like, go, go man, right? Um, and I want to highlight something here that when you say the law is blind, but the implementation is not blind. One of the things that my research showed since the 70s, and I'm actually writing about this now, is that intentionally the way the different systems stayed racist after the 70s Mm-hmm. is by splitting up the track, like basically creating a track where you knew black folk were and people of color were going to end up, black and brown mm-hmm. folk, and then another track where you knew white folk would end under. So the reason why the implementation is racist is because it was a strategy that worked to basically split up the tracks people are processed under so you didn't have to talk about race anymore. So that whole difference in sentencing, right? The difference in sentencing between crack cocaine and cocaine, right? Mm -hmm. That's intentional. And systems always work to preserve themselves. You know, it didn't happen because we're horrific human beings. It's because systems always work to preserve themselves. And so in the face of all the anti-discrimination laws of the 70s, what our systems did was find a way to not use the word race and stay racist. Right. And all right. of our systems did that. Like I have examples of the foster care system and the legal system and the family court system and the welfare system. And I just gave an example of criminal justice since we're talking about law enforcement and criminal justice, right? So I have to say one thing I was thinking about this morning before we got on here is in law school, we're learning criminal law. You start off because it's, you know, theoretical. They talk about the purpose of punishment, right? So the criminal justice system is this idea of we someone has harmed all of society. That's why it's the state against a person, right? You didn't just harm an individual. You harmed all of society by behaving this way. And so now we want to punish you, but there are multiple purposes of punishment. There's retribution. There's uh, reconciliation. So there's like these four purposes of punishment. And then when they created the juvenile justice system specifically, 
quickly. It was it was originally idealistically mm. on paper. When they separated it out, it was supposed to be for rehabilitation. So it was supposed to help them come back into society and grow into it. However, all of the implementation, if you look through all the body of laws, the decisions by judges, everything shifted towards punishment only. Punishment in the form of revenge. Because revenge is actually one of the four purposes. You just want to harm the person. Like, that's it. So we're saying you hurt society, but society gets nothing out of it, right? So if we want to talk numbers. Every time we throw somebody in jail, who pays for it? Taxpayers. Who's paying for law enforcement? Taxpayers, right? So you're saying you harm society, now I pay to punish you, right? And I'm going to pay a whole lot of money to punish you. That doesn't make any sense, right? I'm only using money because it's a capitalist society and like. People like to filter it through dollars. Mm -hmm. It means absolutely nothing. But I say that everything you said, Lewis, is so true, which is why I think, and I, I said this to Rita the last time, we have to go all the way back and undo all the body of laws. And I think there's only one way to do that, which is to rewrite the Constitution so that so many of these things become unconstitutional in one pop, right? Now, of course, you're gonna be building and doing other things at the same time. We have the defund conversation. We have the reallocation mm -hmm. of resources. But at some point, these laws, these racist caste laws have to be undone. And the best way to undo it is to rule them all unconstitutional all at the same time. I, I wanna comment on Commissioner Molina. I have to call him Commissioner Molina because he is my boss. That's <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I just can't call, I can't well, call him in public Lewis. We're not yeah. doing that. You know, <laughs> well, anyway. we're, we're, we're colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> so what Commissioner Molina was saying when he was addressing the systems is what one of my mentors, Professor Jimmy Bell from Jackson State University, he is the originator of community policing. When you're evaluating the systems on how it relates um, to policing, the, the systems in the community, that is real community policing. That's what community policing is about, because I want the listeners to understand, because what they have done is turn community policing into coffee with a cop. That's mm -hmm. not community policing. That is policing programs, right? So community policing is evaluating the systems and how the systems relate to policing in the community. And I really think we have to have that understanding. We're having that this conversation now because it's on the forefront and we need to have the conversation, but we also need to understand the language in which we are talking about. So when people say, oh, I'm doing community policing, I'm, I'm out here having a bagel and a coffee with a cop and we're doing, no, that's not community policing. What we're talking about now is real community policing. And I want to add something to that, which came up in our episode, uh, in the episode with you, Damon, that when it was originally conceived, it was extended community policing. Right, extended. Exactly. And extended meant questioning and shifting the systems that were behind the practices and the culture. Exactly. Right? The practices, the rules, and the culture. Exactly. And one of the ways it was co-opted which is often what happens in our movements, unfortunately, is that extended was dropped and it became yeah. coffee with a cop. <laughs> Basically. I mean, this is my, this is my, I'm being facetious here, but right. coffee with a cop is something to me. 
I mean, that doesn't mean I can't go on coffee with a cop, but it's not going to shift our systems, right? No, it's not no, going to shift no. our systems. Right. And I think relationships are important. I think knowing the law enforcement officers who work in your, in our neighborhoods is exactly. extremely important because as you were saying on your show, you know, if I'm going to kill Reggie and his mama <laughs> lives next door to me, I'm going to think twice before I kill Reggie, right? Right. And you're going to treat Reggie differently and you're going to relate to Reggie. You are a stakeholder in the community of community right. policing also. One of the pillars is the police living in the community. Yeah. So, you know, how, how do we address something right now that has been systematically taken away? Like even the Fraternal Order of Police, they have a memo out against police living in the community that they serve. And, and they have pushed that memo somewhere. I could send it to you. I, I have it somewhere on argument? my hard drive. What's the argument? They, police aren't safe? Yeah, something police like aren't that. safe. I mean, I'm not that old. I remember police living in, in the community. I remember two brothers in Greenberg Police Department, Mike and Ray Turnbull, lived in the community and was my dad's club football coaches. It was a practice, but then it changed over the years that they were, a lot of officers are advised not to live in the community that they police. So you all mentioned like three solutions and I want to shift towards, you know, where are we going? Where do we have power? What can we build together? So I just want to highlight the three things I heard, and then we can go from there, and I have a specific question. So one, I heard Lewis talk about the need to do a, some serious reconciliation work. And I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you called it reconciliation or truth and yeah. reconciliation. Yeah. yeah, truth and reconciliation. So, yeah, so all the truth and reconciliation work that was done in South Africa, we just bypassed mm -hmm. that part. Right. Yeah. Like, Americans just woke up and, you know, white Americans just like shook it off and went, I'm not racist yeah. anymore. And then we're surprised that, you know, white fragility shows up and microaggressions show up and our systems haven't shifted. Right. We haven't had a process. Yeah. It was so healing for me to hear you say that. Right. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a process to go from 400 years of enslavement indentured servitude, 70 years of segregation, depending on how you calculate it, right? Mm -hmm. Just like shake it off and go like, oh, sure. we're not sure. that anymore. As if human beings do that. The apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree, right? That's one piece you brought. Carla, I love your very, I could call it provocative, but as someone who does organizational development work, rewriting the constitution doesn't sound impossible to me. Because organizations rewrite their visions all the time. This showed up in, our, in the show with you, right? And it takes a transition phase. So just like a truth and reconciliation board is a transition phase, it also takes a transition phase to rewrite the vision of a country and the laws of a country, the backbone law of a country, and then kind mm -hmm. of realign everything. Like that could be a 20-year process. Sure. But it, it could also be the difference between us uh, living 20 years from now and self-destructing. That's my personal take. And then, Damon, you were adding the piece around extended community policing as originally intended, which includes like a systematic review and analysis of systems and where they are not aligning with the culture we intend to create. So just kind of highlighting, I'm just repeating back to you what, what I heard you say, both because I think they're all great ideas and because I want to shift in that direction. My question is, in the context of policing, how do we envision liberty and justice for all? I want to say, I actually think all three of the things that we have talked about 
work hand in hand together. And the truth and reconciliation, I think we can't even get to my constitution without there being some form of truth and reconciliation. So what does liberty and justice for all look like in the context of policing? I'm going to start with the community policing thing. So one of the problems that I see now, and I'm sure Damon will agree with me on this one, is that there's so much misinformation that flows between different communities, right, of color, uh, racial communities, economic communities, but also the community as a whole and the policing community, right? There is no central body of knowledge that everybody holds on to, which makes no sense in a civil society um, that we're supposed to abide by laws, but nobody understands the laws of the system, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. so I think Justice for me looks like everybody having a base body of knowledge that we're starting, right? There's just a base foundation we're starting there. Liberty and justice for me looks like an acknowledgement, the truth, reconciliation, acknowledgement of the past and the results that flow out of the open-mindedness to not fear that just because you harm someone, that they're justice looks like revenge, mm-hmm. right? There's this assumption, there's a this, this great fear that we don't want to talk about slavery. We don't want to talk about Jim Crow. We don't want to talk about, actually, let's just housing in America, poverty in America. We don't mm-hmm. want to talk about any of those things because we think that those people who are suffering it, if they come out of it, you know, we're going to have a Rwanda on us, right? You know, we're going to reverse it and they're going to put us in this place. But There's enough support, right, to show South Africa, many places. Every time I think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, I remember this one story, and this is the last thing I'll say. It was about an older woman who was meeting with the officer who murdered her son, right, under apartheid. And so they were asking her, what do you want? Like, what do you want the outcome of this? And we don't even have good victims rights here, right? So even if you're a victim of a crime, you might not even have a say in your own case in America. That's this whole other issue. Anyway, they asked her, what do you want us to do with the murder of your son? And she said, I've lost the opportunity to pass all my traditions down, all of the stories of my ancestors to someone else. So I want him to become my son. I want him to take the place of my son so I can share everything that I lost when he took his life. The assumption would have been that she would have wanted his death. But what she actually did was she took him into her home. The idea that we are so afraid that our hate can only, or not our, because it wasn't my hate, but (laughs) that the hate that Black people have experienced or that Native Americans have experienced or even Japanese people through the internment camp have experienced that their idea is that justice for us is always going to look like revenge. And I say it won't. And so justice does not look like revenge. Justice looks like equity for all peace. I think that everybody wants to just live eat, sleep, take care of their family, and not have any worries. And justice is where everyone gets the opportunity to live free of the pressures and trauma that comes along with that. I was just looking up something. 
So if we're trying to have justice in a system of policing that has been historically created to oppress Black people, right? I think the first thing the Black community must do is they must be involved in the political process of their municipalities. They must be involved in who they vote for in city council, who they vote for the mayor, because um, ultimately in, in, in many other cities, the police commissioner works for the mayor, right? So how your policies and procedures and training and how your police department relates to the community that you live in is based upon who the mayor hires as the police commissioner. First, the people of the city must take part of that process. That's the first process. The second is that the police who are paid by the taxpayers of the city must recognize that they work for the people of the city. A lot of times this culture is that the police are a separate entity outside of the municipality. Like they don't have the same responsibilities and accountabilities of average municipality workers. First, that has to be brought to their attention. And that when community asks for justice and accountability, it's not an attack on the police. Break, we have to break that wall down between the community and the police. It's looking for something because a lot of the criminal justice and the police advocates and those that stick on side, they always reference Robert Peel, right? Robert Peel is the founder of law enforcement. But there's something that Robert Peel said that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing on one of the nine principles is that the police police the community at the will of the citizenry, right? At the will of the people. We've got away from that. If we want to get back to really justice, right, the police have to have an understanding. They're policing at the will of the people. The people are not at the will of the police. So we have to change cultures in the community mm -hmm. and, and how they relate to the political process and also culture in the police department and how it re relates to the community that it serves. I think if we start there and we build from that, um, we could start seeing justice in our police departments, in the communities that we live. To build on what Damon said, I think for me, there's like three misperceptions that I think people sort of get skewed when they're thinking about reform and thinking about the roles that individual police officers play. And I think to name three of those things, one is this perception that officers don't care. I think the majority of our law enforcement officers do care. But unfortunately, there's a significant majority that get caught up in the culture that has been defined by the leadership of these institutions that value or define success really without concern of the consequences of their actions and how it disenfranchises segments of the public, largely poor communities and communities of color. The second thing I'll say is about accountability. We do have systems and we have government bodies that can hold law enforcement agencies accountable. There are a number of oversight bodies that have legal and regulatory authority to hold us accountable. But the leaders of these institutions have to have the will to do so. And part of that is what Damon was talking about. We have seen, even in largely SWAT Democratic electorates, this shift <laughs> right further left because the voting block has been surging That's because right. they're demanding that the government work and function the way it was intended to work and function, right, for all communities. 
And the third thing I'll say is, you know, there's during the Obama administration, we had a significant number of law enforcement departments enter, which was known as federal consent decrees and oversight. And under the Trump administration, they have moved away from that. The challenge for me is that federal consent decrees actually do not change the culture of law enforcement agencies, right? Right. From my perspective, when you found through a Department of Justice practice or practice investigation that there have been systemic patterns of abuse, like I said earlier, police commissioners, chief of police, they define how their agencies operate, right? And if the federal government is going to task local governments and, and have decrees over their consent, their police agencies or other law enforcement agencies at a significant cost to the taxpayers, then I think these U.S. attorney's offices that conduct these investigations need to find a way to identify the elements of the law that allow them to hold the heads of these agencies, the commissioner and the chief of police, accountable in some way. If that's civilly, to make sure that they never lead another law enforcement agency again, or in some episodes where significant civil rights violations and patterns of practice had left had led to the death of individuals that are vulnerable, then there could be some criminal culpability in that, right? We've seen now in Minneapolis something that we've never seen. The three additional officers that failed to act to prevent the death of Mr. Floyd, the argument's going to be made that they have a legal culpability to have stopped that from happening, right? We're seeing it in Atlanta, right, with the officer that didn't shoot. The DAs and the prosecutors are making an argument that there's some legal culpability in that, right? But they're leaders of these agencies that define this, right? And if you say the buck stops here and, you know, the top has to sort of define what this means, then that has to be owned all the way to the point of accountability by those who have the power to hold these systems accountable. That is literally the basis of why we have the International Criminal Court, the, the same kind of idea where, like, we decided to have this outside body to hold the leaders accountable. But unfortunately, our country keeps taking the stance of, now nah, we don't want to hold, like, we didn't sign on the International Criminal Court because right. we fear that. But conceptually, absolutely right, because if, if you scare the top and say, oh, I'm going to lose my job if I do this. They'll behave better. Absolutely. Exactly. Behavior modification. Exactly. <laughs> they can have a terrible heart, but I promise you they're not going to do nothing to make them lose their So, like, this got kicked off through Damon highlighting the foundation of policing and law enforcement is that officers operate at the will of the people, right? Like that's the same as saying they're accountable to the people they serve, not the other way around. And so all the calls that we've had for accountability, and I've talked with each of you individually about like how there are loopholes, right? Like our system just has all these loopholes that people get through. So focusing, like diving in more around systems of accountability, like what are the systems of accountability that are missing or what are the loopholes that need to be closed? So what are the so, strategic ones that you think we should be pushing for right now? Like, yeah, which, so, what so what I, should we be wrapping our collective power around like right here and right now? When you think about transparency, right? 
I'm a big believer in due process, right? I think there should be a due process for everyone. But I don't think that that due process should be different for people that are in law enforcement than people that are civilians, right? Right. So yeah. whether somebody acts intentionally or recklessly, but that behavior leads to someone being seriously injured or worse, dead, then there has to be a system of accountability that we all go through to evaluate, well, what's the next step here? Is this a criminal justice process or is this something else, right? And we see disparities in the due process when law enforcement officers make a mistake, either through reckless or misjudgment or intentional to some degree, and that of civilians, right? And we have to make sure that the standard and the bar to reach that threshold is the same for everyone in society. And that's how you can have some real procedural justice mm -hmm. for the entire nation. So we can start off with something like that, which I don't think is a hard thing to achieve, right? I mean, we want to blame collective bargaining agreements and all of these things, but the criminal evaluation and investigation to reckless or intentional acts that lead to serious physical injury or death of anyone need to be investigated and the standards should be consistent for anybody that is the primary aggressor in that situation. I'm going to translate that a little bit more like the way Damon said it on your show, right? Because you were like super clear. So that means a criminal law. Exactly. Right? Like, That's what I was going to say. Okay, go for it. Go ahead and say yeah. it. Because this yeah. is like just bringing it out more clearly. We have our organization and other black law enforcement organizations. Our whole thing is this violations of policy procedures and training if that officer willing or unwilling violate policy procedures and training that results in serious injury or death should be a police crime there should be a police crime statute a police crime law that defines that what we're seeing now in washington dc and even here in new york state they passed the, the trophy right we've been waiting on seven years how long has it been since eric garner died that they uh, haven't passed yeah. the, the chokehold law. But knowing me as, as law enforcement, right, what happened to Floyd wasn't a chokehold. It was a knee to the back, right? A knee to the neck. That wasn't a chokehold. Officers, police officers, law enforcement, hmm. we train mixed martial arts. We do all type of stuff. We don't have to kill you with a chokehold. We don't have to kill you with a knee to the back. We could use some jujitsu hold that can hurt you and you might, depending on your condition, you might die, right? then we're not trained in that, right? We're not trained. That's a violation of training. So to make everything simple, any violation of policy, procedure, or training that leads to serious injury or death is the crime. Just that simple. And then we talk about giving the proper due process that Commissioner Molina is talking about. So the unions can't complain. You're going to get the due process but you violated policy procedure and now you're being brought up on criminal can I, can I throw in? Carla, so, yes. you're going to jump ahead. in here. I just want to point uh, something out for clarity because I wouldn't have understood this if I hadn't had the last show with you, Damon, that mm -hmm. what you're saying is that right now those violations of policy procedures and training are treated as violations of policy procedures and training. They no, are not treated, treated as, as crimes. crimes. Yes. They're not treated, they're not as, treated crime. as crimes. And so the right. reason why so many officers walk off is because it's, it's, it's treated as a procedure violation, which is minor. 
Right. Because we don't right. have the law to hold right. folks accountable to protecting lives. Right. And exactly. you, what you were saying last time is that it's so simple as you're not trained to kill anybody. So if you kill someone, there's a violation in procedure. Well, and well, a different... well, 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 yeah. Well, you're, you're trained to use deadly force. But how are you using the deadly force? Right. Are you using the deadly force how you were trained? You know, because we get training every year. You know, you could shoot on this. You can't shoot on that. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot a person like this. Right. We get that training. If use your deadly force and then they do the investigation and found out what you did, you know, you wasn't trained to do, you know, like like the cop that shot the guy in the back. He shot him in the back. So, you know, what would you train to do that? No. All right. Then you know what? We got to go through the process and we got to reach out to the district attorney because you violated your policies, procedures and your training. And that's in a nutshell. So, I mean, we could use deadly force. A lot of times we get off because we use deadly force and we justify our use of deadly force through writing. Right. We're able to write good reports. But sometimes a video will come out and show that the report that we wrote is not exactly what happened. Right. And that's what's been happening. When the administration finds that out, they go through that process. Right. It, what, is it in policy? Right. It is it in procedure. But well, was you trained to do that? No. Then you got a problem if you wasn't. So Carla, and then I have a follow-up question for Carla, but go. Okay, so I love this concept, except for now I have to be the lawyer. So then you get into the court, and then the judges, so one, we have Supreme Court precedent that support the interpretation of police shootings and the how standard in which the court is supposed to determine whether the police officer acted reasonably or unreasonably under the circumstance. And the way the Supreme Court precedent is already set, most of these officers are going to get off, right? Mm. Then you also have judges who have the power to decide what information comes in or doesn't come in when they exclude Mm. evidence, right? That in the judge's bias, and there is a lot of bias on the bench by judges, Mm -hmm. um, is going to lean towards trying to make sure this officer gets off. In some states, not every state, but in some states, you have grand juries, and the prosecutor is allowed to bring in whatever information they want, right? And for a traditional criminal, they typically bring in only the bad stuff and no justification for their action. But when police officers are in there, the prosecutor brings in both the bad stuff and the justification. So then the grand jury says, well, I mean, based on the way the law sits, then they still get off. So unless we get someone, so if we're going to do that, what you also have to do is have someone sue all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court accept the case, (laughs) the Supreme Court rule in your favor, and then overturn all of the bad uh, Supreme Court precedent. That's why when you asked me that question, I initially was like, how do you get through the loopholes? Well, let's get right. uh, bad right. judges off the bench. <laughs> let's get people who follow the law. Let's be, you know, sorry. So, so I love that because that, that talks right. to how the exactly. systems change is a chain effect. Mm-hmm. And here's where I think we got it wrong in the 70s. We weren't observing the chain effects. 
because mm-hmm. systems work to preserve themselves. I'm going to say that over like an apple seed doesn't suddenly give oranges. Right? Like systems work to preserve themselves. So when you're trying to tweak or change something, you have to monitor what changes with it. What you're saying, Carla, is like you also need a case to be argued in the Supreme Court. And that's part of the transition, right? Like that's the understanding of you have an action, not because it's going to fix everything, but because it's going to start a chained process of transformation that will require time. Right. So and I want you to know what the case is. It's called Graham v. Connor, right, which set the standard for how the courts are supposed to look at excessive force used mm. in policing is Graham mm-hmm. B. Connor. And they used a civilian reasonable person standard, not a higher level standard. Now, of course, the legislators could try to rewrite a new law to say that they're specifically trying to overturn Graham B. Connor, right? But that still takes you fighting with the legislators exactly. to do that. Yeah. And right. then your law enforcement, right, the, the, the union can go sue and hold up that law until it goes up to the Supreme Court. So eventually it probably would have to go to the Supreme Court anyway. So I just wanted you to kind of no, fill up with that. Picture. So we're running out of time. And so I'm going to give you each like one minute to wrap up with a final thought. Carla, if you and tell and let us know how we can get in touch with you and follow your work and support you. Carla, if it works for you, I'd love for your final thought to be around something we talked about separately, which is the difference in training between FBI and police. If you can talk about that a little bit, I'd love to hear that as a final thought. Very quickly. So I won't tell you why I know this, but because that'd take too long. But the, the point was, I oftentimes when people, you know, talk about police officers in these shootings, I said, have you noticed that you never really hear a black unarmed person being shot by an FBI agent or a DEA or ATF. And the reason really is because the consequence is very different. If your first shot as a federal agent is to the head, to the chest, is a deadly shot, you lose your job first. It's the procedural things that you guys are talking about. They immediately shut you down, right? They'll do an investigation afterwards, but your job is gone. And you have to fight to get it back. When I went to a training here in Philadelphia, director, I forget what he's called, his official title. He's like, oh, no, we train them to go home, to make sure you go home as an officer. Your job is to make sure you get home safely. (laughs) So chest, hit the biggest target to make sure you get home versus the federal agents are like, arrest the person so we can give them due process. And that training is a very different mentality. Oh, uh, how can, can we get tension with you? I'm just going to give you my cell because it's the easiest way to reach me. I don't always check my email every day. So it's 215-629-6349. My law firm is Legal Empowerment Group. It's in evolution right now. Um, but the easiest way for you to get in touch with me, what I do is I do low bono legal services and I do a lot of consulting and advice for people. Can you, can you give that uh, number again, please? 215 629 Text me, call me, I answer my call. <laughs> We're behind on time, so we'll end like two oh. minutes late. Just quick, quick last thoughts. And how do we get in touch with you? I'll just make it quick. You can get in touch with me, um, blackwestchester.com, 
or bleausa.org. Damon K. Jones on all social media platforms. Damon K. Jones, you can get me there. And um, let's continue the conversation. This is what it's all about. We have to continue conversations to create great ideas to create change. Dr. Rita, listen, thank you again for having me. For me and my final thoughts, I'd want the audience to know that there are many of us in law enforcement that, like you, have been fighting these systemic issues. Many of us in this fight have lost our livelihood and our careers. Support us um, when we come to you for assistance, especially those that are advocating for the same things that we are advocating for from within. And like Damon had said earlier, um, I can't stress enough about participatory in your government um, by voting and, and responding to the census. I have a personal website, lewismolina.com. People can always reach me through that. And, and um, be safe. I have tremendous gratitude for each and every one of you. Lewis, just like I want to say the disclaimer, since we didn't on this episode, we know sure. that your thoughts are your personal thoughts. They're not the thoughts of your department. You're not here to Thank represent. You. Right. But you're giving us your personal experience and your personal stance based on uh, what you're committed to and what's important to you. Yes. Thank um, you. So, you know, thank you for taking your time. You know, you're the first person I've seen in a suit in uh, four months. Get a, a thumbs up for that. Uh, I didn't know people were wearing suits anymore. Um, so and, and, you know, if there are pajamas underneath, it's OK. You, you, don't, you don't have to say it. you don't have to say it. Carla, thank you for uh, being a visionary, talking about this piece around changing the Constitution, which I think is doable. And uh, Louis, thank you for bringing this piece around truth and reconciliation. I think it, it's really powerful coming from you. And Damon, thank you for reminding us that this isn't new, right? That with like extended community policing has been put on the table in the 70s where we faced our systemic racism and we can learn from how we challenged it from what we did and what we didn't do so that this wave of movement building and of justice can uh, be more real. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic. <laughs>